Welcome to The Mental Cast, powered by Soul Performance Academy. The Mental Cast is a podcast focused on the topics and people helping drive us forward in leadership, learning, and our personal journeys. Just a reminder, you can send in your questions using the hashtag AskDanMickle, A-S-K-D-A-N-M-I-C-K-L-E, or sending an email to info at danmickle.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Mental Cast. Here is the host of The Mental Cast, Dan Mickle. Dan Mickle, and today I am super stoked because I get to have not only a mentor, but someone I consider a great friend on the show, men's head coach at George Mason University, Jay Hosick. Jay, say hello to everyone, and why don't you give us a little bit of your background before we kind of get to the meat of this topic. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm excited to be here. I, I, uh, this is this, always getting a chance to talk uh, talk shop and, and have an intelligent conversation. It's always something I look forward to, so I'm excited to be here. Um, you know, as far as a, a brief bio, uh, I came into volleyball kind of late in life. Um, and uh, without getting into too much, I, I, I didn't start playing until I got into college. Uh, and I played at a little junior college in California, Pasadena City College, and uh, got recruited uh, by a couple places. And I chose um, UC Santa Cruz, go fighting banana slugs. And, um, and then after I graduated, um, I, I got into another industry out of college and was asked uh, by the head coach at the time uh, if I was interested in maybe being an assistant. I still really wanted to play. And so I took a chance and, and I just kind of fell in love with it. Um, and ever since then, uh, I've been trying to figure out ways to get better and learn from some of the better people in the country. And work their camps and work their clinics and, you know, pick their brains a little bit and, you know, kind of bounced around from place to place and got my master's degree. And I just, you know, I got lucky in a few different locations and, and got hooked up with the right people at the right time. And, you know, then I ended up with the national team and, and coaching with them during the 2008 run. And then, um, you know, I had a couple of interviews at some big time D1s and Penn State was the place that I chose. And, it's actually how I got connected with you. And, uh, and then, you know, from there, uh, a whole bunch of fun opportunities opened up with the U.S. national team, the junior national team, and traveled around the world and, you know, represented the USA and got to coach in the PVL with you, which I thought was an absolute blast and, and loved every minute of that. And, uh, yeah, you know, the, the Mason job opened up and, and uh, the uh, associate AD who is in charge of men's volleyball there, uh, is an alumni of Penn State, and I met him when I was when I was at Penn State as an assistant. Uh, and it's a running joke, actually, uh, that the first alumni weekend uh, he came back to be a part of it all, and we were kind of passing each other, going into the bathroom, and uh, and I said, "Hey, Ron, uh, I know Fred is still there, and I'm not trying to kick anybody out, but should that job ever open up and you're still there, I'd be really interested in it." And uh, he kind of smiled and laughed and. And said, yeah, I'll keep that in mind. And uh, sure enough, five years later, uh, the job opened up. And, and Ron gave me a call and invited me to be a part of it. And, you know, it's been just the best move professionally for myself and for my wife. And uh, we're real happy out here in, uh, in, in Virginia, in Northern Virginia. So that's kind of the brief bio. 
So when, you know, I kind of put the bat single out that I wanted to, to, to have some people on and the topics and, and you responded and your topic is actually something that has kind of been on my mind, but I'm glad you brought it up because I think it'd be better as a discussion versus a lecture. And, and you brought up talking about, you know, how we progress and move up that ladder, ladder as a coach. Um, you, you know, my story is pretty similar in the sense of, I started coaching literally out of high school. Uh, it would never happen today, but I was 18 coaching girls, 18s uh, for club and then moved to high school and then junior college and then, you know, division three and working with the beach national teams and the sitting teams and the PVL. So let's talk about that, that first step, you know, saying yes to that first job and, obviously you're glad you said yes, I'm sure because of where you're at now, but what do you think was your thought process then when you said yes versus looking back what your thought process should have been when you said yes? <laughs> that, that's a really good question. The should have been is probably um, the better direction. I, I'll be honest with you. When, when I graduated from UCSC, uh, I got into real estate because a fraternity brother of mine owned the local brokerage in town in Santa Cruz and I needed a job. I mean, you know, <laughs> I need to make money to pay the bills. So I got involved in real estate. And uh, when I got asked to be back, uh, that coach the next season decided he was going to leave. Uh, and asked me if I was interested in it. And I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit uh, kind of pie in the sky with my thoughts of what that money would have been like. And I worked five jobs at UC Santa Cruz in order to make $24,000 a year. And if you live in Santa Cruz or know about it, you know that that's not a living wage by any standard. So um, I really, I took the, the job because I needed the money. Um, I didn't really fall in love with the profession until after my first season where, it, I mean, it, you're teaching, right? And you're, you're, in, you're helping these young kids, uh, which at the time I was, what, 27 or 28. You mean people not much younger than me, you're, you're kind of helping them navigate their way through life and through college. And, and I really, I always gravitated towards people that were, more of a mentor sort, kind of an uncle, uh, but always had some some guidelines and, and, and strict ways of doing things to kind of keep me in line. But I always wanted somebody to kind of show me the ropes rather than somebody who lectured to me all the time. And I thought that this was a really neat way to do it. So that's, that's kind of, I, I, I took it because of money, uh, but but looking back on it, it, don't isn't that what we really do anyways, Dan? I mean, don't you take a job because maybe maybe you think the industry that you're getting into is going to be fun and maybe there might be some rewards to it, but really you need, you need stability in order to take the next jump to whatever it is. So you, you kind of take anything that's at, at hand at the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. So do you consider your relationship with your coach that, so that was the coach that you played for asked you back, right? So, so you're, you're going back to coach under your Correct. former coach. Correct. And, and I'm assuming that as a player, you probably had a, a good relationship with that coach. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. I mean, he was the guy who coached me at Santa Cruz uh, was not the guy that recruited me. So the guy that recruited me and, and I use the word recruitment pretty loosely. I don't think there was really much, phone calls going back and forth. I think my girlfriend in junior college went up there 
uh, and I went up on a visit to go see her and I talked to the coach a little bit and I kind of established a little relationship. But, but that coach, the year that I moved up to Santa Cruz, he got a, he got the assistant men's job at UOP. Uh, and so a new guy took over and I'll be honest with you, a, a, a sweetheart of a gentleman, uh, a, a good soul and, and, and had all the right intentions. I just don't think coaching college was his forte. Uh, and I think, I think me as a player, the, the team that I played with for three years or whatever, were really good players. Uh, and we were successful, I think, mean, kind of despite what he was teaching. I, I don't think we necessarily learned a ton from him. But, but I, 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 I wanted to be a part of it because I thought it was cool to be a part of. And, and I needed some money. And, I, and again, it wasn't a ton, uh, but it was something that got me involved. And then from there, it kind of blossomed. And I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at in the sense of, for me, I started coaching because right out of high school, I I mean, you know how it is, especially now that you're on the East Coast, there in the the early 90s was not a lot of options for volleyball for for boys on the East Coast. Right. Um, I, I didn't have the club system that we have now. So I just grew up playing on the beach. Um, So when I turned 18, I figured I was just going to be a beach and a ski bum. And for four years, I coached club and I worked at the ski resort in the area. And that was my life. And I really became a coach because I just wanted to pay the bills and to keep me connected to that sport so that I could try and make it in the beach. Right. And I'm starting to learn that very few people come up and say, you know what, I want to be a coach because I think it'd be fun to be a coach. There's there's always something behind it. Um, I'm seeing a lot of, uh, I'm coaching club volleyball because my kid's playing and they need a coach, or I want to get a discount on my kid's dues because I don't want to pay six grand a year. Right. Um, but there's very few people that are like, hey, I think it'd be fun just to be a coach and start coaching. There's, there's usually some backstory that pulls you in, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I think it's just interesting that it's one of the few things. It's not like other sports. You know, you, you have people, uh, you know, Charlie Wise at, at Notre Dame was an example, right? Didn't really play in the college and the pro ranks, but just knew he wanted to be a coach from the get-go, and that's what he decided to do. Right. Um, so it was interesting to hear that it, for you it was, it was an opportunity. You needed the money, plus it was kind of a good environment. But at some point that – that switches you're like hey i could actually a be really good at this and probably make a living out of it if i'm good yeah no so did did that switch for you happen there like did you instantly know within the next year or two like this is the path i want to go or did you just kind of muddle along and then eventually something happened you're like okay this is what i'm going to commit to because at some point you have to as a coach put other things aside just from the time constraints of it all when did that happen for you? Like, when did you decide like, okay, this is my path. Yeah, no, that that's that I've, I've had that discussion a few times with my wife. We we've always kind of been fans of looking back on decisions we've made when, where, and, and how it has shaped what we do. Um, so I was an assistant coach uh, that, that, so I graduated in 97, which is, you know, I graduated high school in 87 and, and I took a few years off. So I was really on the six-year plan in college, but 
Um, I graduated college in 97 and uh, the the following season, I was a co-head coach with another player of mine. We both kind of took it and ran with it a little bit. And it wasn't, it wasn't what I expected. Uh, It was fun, but I I butted heads with the other guy because I didn't know what I was doing. Dan, I'll be honest with you. I kind of clueless. Um, And the following year, the job opened up officially and a local guy named Ralph Smith took the head coaching job. Now, Ralph played at Long Beach State back in the in the 70s and 80s um, and was on the national team briefly. Uh, and so he got the job, and which is fine. And But he asked me if I was interested in being his assistant still. And I said, you know what, I'd, I'd love to. It, you know, you and I, people that get into volleyball, you, you get into it at first because it's a different kind of sport and they like hitting. But when you start to play the game at a higher level, you start to really appreciate the, the uniqueness of it and the fun that it creates and the characters that it generates. And I wanted to continue to play at, a, at the highest level I could. And being an assistant at the college that I played at allowed me to continue to play at times. And so that, that's really kind of why I got into it there. But uh, after two years of doing that, he decided he wanted to move on and the university opened up the job again and I got the job. And then the women's job opened up the following semester and we did an opening, an open look for it. And I got the women's job as well. So they gave me both jobs and I had no assistant coaches. Uh, I had one, but it wasn't like, you know, I had this big full-time assistant coach. It was just a girl that played on the team that lived locally and help out. And she has since gone on to become a coach at other schools, but the first year was literally jumping in over my head and seeing if I can swim. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to schedule. I didn't know how to call hotels. I didn't know how to make, you know, I didn't know how to set up practices. I really didn't know anything, Dan. And, you know, it was, it was nerve wracking, but I knew at the same time, I thought, you know, let's just kind of fumble through it. You, you, you're never really going to know how tall you stand until you get in there over your head. So, I did that, but the following semester, the following year, there was a gold medal squared uh, clinic that was being thrown up at St. Mary's College, and uh, Carl McGowan was running it, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to do a little bit of professional development, and, and maybe I'll make some connections, right, and I went, and man, did it open my eyes to what coaching really should involve, and they talked about everything, and I'm not I'm not a gold medal squared, uh, you know, banger. I don't, I don't bang the drum every chance I get and go, Hey, gold medal squared is the thing to do. I'm just talking about that one clink that I did that really just opened my eyes. And Carl was, was really gracious with me and answered a lot of my questions. And I came back with this new kind of sense and purpose of what I was doing. And I remember the team that I coached my men's team at the time, really reacted well to the new practice structures, to the ways that I was talking and training, to the things I was teaching. And I was getting this positive feedback. And, and granted, it, it didn't mean that all of a sudden I was Don Shaw. You know, I, I didn't become Russ Rose overnight. Um, but what I did was I started the journey of mastering my craft. And I've always loved being a teacher. So this just kind of gave me a different classroom. And that was when I got hooked. That's when I made the decision, hey, wait a minute. There, there's some actual future in this. And, and talking to Carl and talking to Don Shaw 
and talking to other women's coaches and men's coaches that I knew at the time, they all looked at me and said, yeah, there's, there's ways to make this a career. You just kind of have to, you know, you got to be patient. Nobody gets into it in the beginning because of the money in, in terms of making tons of it. You make a little bit. Um, but if you're patient, the opportunities will pose themselves. And if you get involved with, with various camps and clinics, you make the networking connections and, you know, you can bounce from there. And that, and that you know, the year 2001, I believe, was about the time when all that started to click. Yeah, so it's interesting with the whole Carl part because that's, you know, sort of what happened to me. I, I ended up getting a high school gig. Um, our, our, my alma mater ended up starting a boys program, and I thought, you know, come hell or high water, I was going to be a part of it. And I got hired as the JV coach. But the same thing, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I, I just, I played, and this is how we're going to do it. And then I end up going to a gold medal square and it's like, oh my God, this is like completely different. And then, you know, getting in the pipeline with, with USA. So speaking to say a, a new coach, a, a new like what's your response to, Hey, that coach, I'm going to be a D one coach someday. And this is going to be my living. What, what's your response to that, to them as a club coach, just starting out? I, I think the, I think other than the, other than it's going to take time and, and that, but I mean, from your personal point of view, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I that's the, that's really the $64,000 question to me is, is, is why, what's the why behind it. Right. And when you're young, you're impulsive. You, know, you, you kind of do things because they're fun or you like doing them or you're getting something immediately out of it. So that I think that's the starting point for anybody in, in any career journey, so to speak. Um, and then where it bounces you and takes you to is obviously, you know, as you get older and more wiser, you, you make better decisions. But I think to anybody who is asking, you know, how do I do it? The first real the first real response for me is, you know, find find a way to connect to uh, coaches that are connected, right? And so you're, you, you're either going to do a summer camp at a college in town. Um, you know, you're going you're gonna to do a clinic that comes to your town, uh, the Gold Medal Squared. I know there's other ones. Uh, um, the Art of Coaching does theirs. They go around the country. You know, anything that gives you uh, USA cap is another opportunity. Anything that gives you connections and a base starting point um, is really, I think that the, the best place to, to begin that journey with. And, you know, once you start getting involved, you'll start understanding what the rig, the, 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 the rigors of being a head coach or being just an assistant coach are all about. And every place is different, right? I mean, you're, you look at coaches like Russ Rose and, and Hambly you know, those guys will grind you into the ground as a young assistant because that's what they did and that's what they expect. You know, they, they, it's a lot of grunt work and it's not glamorous. You know, you're, you're, you're up at all hours of the day and all hours of the night and you're, you're breaking down video and you're putting together scouting reports and you're doing all the grunt work that, you know, they have kind of honed and mastered over the years to be a little bit of a quicker science, but they need some validating thoughts and ideas. But, you know, once once you get past all that and you make these connections and they start to see that you're good at what you're doing, they give you a little bit more responsibility. And then all of a sudden they start hearing about jobs that are opening up and they they make phone calls on your behalf. And that's kind of how it all 
that's kind of how it all evolves, right? I mean, you're not really, if you don't know anybody, nobody's going to call you. And if nobody knows who you are, they're not going to just look you up in the phone book because you have the name college coach next year, next year name. So um, I think that's kind of how it all starts. What, what do you think is more important? And, and I, I realize that both are important, but if you had to choose one, is it the education and going to the clinics and learning how to coach, or is it taking the job and doing the grunt work and grinding it out? Well, are they, is one happening without the other? Cause it, cause let's be honest. If you're, it, if you're, if you're Dan Mickle head coach at Penn state university, and Jay Hosick is uh, an unknown coach entity. And I call you up and say, hey, I want to be an assistant coach. And you ask me, well, what experience do you have? And I tell you none. Are you going to hire me? No, but I guess my question would be, do I say, hey, Jay, no, but I have a, a volunteer coach position. And it's going to suck up a lot of your time. Do you want to take that knowing that you're not going to get the money and to, and to pay for the education? I guess my question is how much do programs spend on educating their coaches? I, I think that, I mean, it, it, it's great. Yeah, no, I, I, it, I it's great coming into those programs, but, but how many of those actually teach? I mean, I think you've had some great mentors. I certainly had great mentors, but I'm starting to feel like maybe that's a little bit uncommon. Um, in a lot of places. Well, what's it, what's the head coach's job, right? For your assistants that the, the head coach's job to the assistant is a, to obviously delegate authority and, and have them do the things you need to do. But really the, in the grand scheme of things, my job for my assistants, uh, Joe Norton and Eric Johnson, my job is to prepare them to become a head coach someday. So I'm in essence teaching them what, the different parts of the job are. And so I think every coach has different ways of doing things. And I've worked for some head coaches over the years that I've absolutely loved working for. Uh, you know, Mark Pavlik comes to mind. Tom Festalesi comes to mind. Hugh McCutcheon comes to mind. Those are guys that uh, allowed me to be me, uh, but also took me under their wing and said, look, I'm going to show you the ropes of how I do things and you could take from it what you want uh, and, and throw away the things that you don't. And um, so you, you, you bounce through those jobs, kind of picking and choosing the things that you're like, ah, I, I really like how we did this. I'm going to take that and I'm going to put it in my bag of tricks and then I'm going to go to my next job and I'm going to say, oh, I really like how we did this. And so I'm going to take that and put it in my bag of tricks. And so the education process, I think, comes with the experience. I'm not, I think going to those clinics, the CAP, the Art of Coaching, the Goldman Squared, I think those things are really good because it gives you a, a, a base foundation really of training um, and, and what to look for and things of that nature. But in terms of running a program, I think that comes along the journey. So it's kind of two separate paths. I think I think you, you kind of get those things and they kind of part and parcel themselves into your, into your, your, your career. Um, and, and along the way you get to utilize those things. That's, I think that's, I think that's my answer to your question. And I don't know if it answers it or not, but that's kind of how I see it. 
it answers it, but it also opens up now another Pandora's box. Um, all, all things considered semi-equal, you're the head coach and you have an open position for, you know, your, your lead assistant, associate head coach, whatever you want to call them, you're next in line. Are you specifically looking for someone to train to become another head coach or are you looking for someone that's going to do the best job? Like for me, my assistant, I know does not want to be a head coach ever. He's, he's at that age and where he's at, he's happy. Um, so I feel like maybe how we work together is a little bit different than if I was mentoring someone to become a head coach. Do you find pros and cons um, back and forth with, uh -huh. with, you know, mentoring someone that wants to be a head coach versus someone to fill the spot in the need that you need on your roster. Yeah. I, you know, I think that for me, and, and I can't talk about any other coaches, but for me, I want somebody who wants to be there and wants to move on uh, and, and is going to take everything they can uh, and squeeze it out and, and, and be able to utilize it later on. And, and that may, it may be nothing, Dan. <laughs> I, I may, I may at the end of this career, when Joe moves on to his next job and, and we sit down and have a beer one night, I may look at him and go, so, you know, what, what are you doing in your gym? And he may look at me and go, Jay, I didn't take a damn thing from you. Uh, <laughs> I learned what not to do. That, that's very well could be the case. I don't think it is, but it could very well be the case. But I think, I think if you go into it with, with the notion of just having somebody for the job, is the passion really there? Is the motivation for them to do the extra work, to put in the extra time, to look at recruiting more seriously, to look at budgeting more seriously, to really be not a yes man, but a let me give you my point of view man. Um, I think to me, that's more important. I, I, I know some coaches that want yes men and I, and I've always in every job interview I've ever done, I've always made the statement up front. If you're looking for a yes man, please do not hire me. I don't, I don't want that job. I, I, I just, I've got a little bit of a stronger personality. I know that's a shocker to anybody listening to this, but I just don't, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't imagine going through life. And every time I bring up a, a topic or, or a, a subject to discuss, of them agreeing with me all the time. I, I think it would drive me nuts. And so I want somebody and I, and I, and I will get into heated arguments and, and I mean, heated arguments, meaning, you know, we're passionate about our position we're taking. We're not, we're not yelling at each other and screaming obscenities, but, but there's moments where I'm looking at Joe and I'm looking at Eric and, and they both have their own opinions and I have mine and we look at each other like we're crazy. But at the end of the day, I appreciate that so much more because it just allows me to know I, there's not one way to skin a cat. You know, there's a lot of ways to do it. And there's a lot of different thought processes. And so that just helps me grow. And so I, I think, I think to answer your question, I, I really want somebody who wants to be a head coach someday. And, and there's some risk in that, right? You, you, you hear it all across the country uh, of assistant coaches submarining the head coach. And, and I may have been guilty of that in, in maybe one of my earlier jobs in my career. I, I don't know. I look back on some things and I go, God, would I have appreciated that if I were the head coach? And, and sometimes I go, yeah, that's not an issue. And other times I go, yeah, maybe not. But that's part of the learning process. You know, it's when you're young, 
and you're you're on the way up and you think you've got all the answers uh you know sometimes those those motivations are maybe not the best and so you got to be aware of that but but if you have if you have the conversations with your coaching staff and you and you have the relationship building uh slowly over time and it becomes a solid foundation i, I really don't think that that issue becomes anything bigger than than just a, a discussion So what was your last stop before you took the Penn State job? Uh, I was, uh, it's kind of a multitude of ones. So I was back in Irvine, California. I was the associate head coach at Irvine Valley College for the men's team. I was the assistant coach at UC Irvine for the women's team. I was an assistant with the men's national team. And I was a boys 18s club head coach and I was getting my master's degree. <laughs> okay. So which one of those or, or how did, oh, trust me, we've all been there. <laughs> what, what, um, which one of those or how did the pipeline open up that you decided to apply at for the Penn state position? So it actually worked in my favor backwards. Um, I actually, when we got the gold medal, uh, uh, let's see, Alan Knipe became the new men's head national team coach, and he was taking a sabbatical from Long Beach State. I was at UC Irvine. Paula Weisshoff just got the job when uh, Charlie Brand retired. And she wanted a different person than me in the job that she was comfortable with, which is, that's fine. It's her choice. So at the time I was just with the men's national team, uh, but Hugh had moved over to the women's side. So I was with the women's side for a little bit and I was kind of looking for another job. So Andy Reed took over the head coaching job at, at Long Beach state. A job opened up there and I applied for it myself, but Pesto, Tom Pestalacci, made a phone call on my behalf to Andy and said, hey, you should probably talk to Jay. He'd be a good coach for you. So I actually reached out to Long Beach. Um, I interviewed with them. And then I was at the, God, was it 2008? 2008, when Penn State was playing Pepperdine in the finals, I was sitting in the stands and Karch Karai was there and I'd worked with Karch for the previous, I don't know, three or four years with the national team and, and training with Misty and Carrie uh, to go to the Olympics. And Karch came up to me and said, hey, I just want you to know that Mark Pavlik gave me a call um, and asked if I knew any coaches that would be a good fit. And he threw my name in the hat. And that's how I got the connection to Penn State. Uh, and so uh, that, that's actually how I got that job opportunity and then i talked to pav and he obviously flew me out the rest is history so then you take the penn state job and sorry to interrupt and that goes back to the connection no, no, no. right right absolutely yeah so, so so does that i mean you kind of bounced around you were doing some good stuff but you were mainly west coast at that point when you accept the penn state job 
is there a sense of, oh my God, this is real now. Like I'm packing up and I'm literally moving across the country to a valley in the middle of Pennsylvania, which is completely different than California. Like first, was it like, I'm sure there were butterflies and nerves cause it's a jump, you know, a, a step up the ladder and, and another school. But was there like that moment? Like, oh my God, this is real. Like this is the path that I'm on now. Yeah, so it's it's funny you talk about that because I literally was talking the other day with my wife about it. So during all that time when I had all those jobs going on, Troy Tanner uh, got an opportunity to be uh, the the Turkish national team beach head coach, and he asked if I was interested in being his assistant. <laughs> and I said, "Wow, that's that's kind of a fun opportunity, right?" So he says, "Hey, we're flying out." uh for an interview uh to kind of you know lay get a lay of the land and, and talk to everybody it's going to be about a week long are you able to go with me and i said yeah i'm able to go so literally and i just started dating stephanie uh we were about a year and a half or so into our relationship and um uh we we get close to the date to leave to go to, to turkey and literally like two days before troy calls me up and says hey uh, I'm really sick. I cannot get on this flight. Can you go by yourself? Take notes, take pictures. This and I said, yeah, no worries. So I go out to Turkey and they drive me around the countryside for a week. And I'm meeting all the heads of state and the whole nine yards. And they're showing me that this is where the training facility is and this and that. So I'm taking pictures and I'm doing it all on behalf of Troy. Right. And at the end of the whole week, they offered me the job. He said, well, Troy's only going to be here, you know, three months or so out of the year. Why are we going to pay him? You take the job and, and we'll, and you can be here all the time. And I literally, I, their, their equivalent of Doug Beal. I looked at the guy and I was like, uh, <laughs> like, what do you say to that? Right. And I said, listen, I, I'm not, I, I can't make a decision on that right now. I got to go home. So I, on the flight home, I started putting together just some pros and cons of everything going on. And when I got home, I knew that, moving to Turkey was not an average, hey, we're just buying a house down the street type situation. So I, I looked at my wife when I walked right. in the door and, and this will all tie into Penn State in a second. I literally looked at my wife as I, as I walked in the door and I said, well, honey, um, got some news for you. And she said, yeah, what's going on? I said, uh, how would you feel about maybe moving to Turkey? Literally, Dan, she looked at me and said, awesome, we're moving to Turkey. And I was like, wait a minute, like, you were that cool with just kind of picking up your life and moving halfway around the world. And ultimately I, I didn't take the job. Uh, it, it was not the right fit. And so when the whole Penn state Long Beach state was going on, I was interviewing at both places at the same time, the whole time I'm on the Penn state trip, I'm like, God, this job feels like it's going to be the one. It feels like it's, it's a good fit and it's not, and I'm calling Stephanie and she's going, yeah, well, Long Beach is in our backyard and I'm, you know, I can continue to work and this and that. So I got an assist from a guy who was just on your podcast recently, Carl France, a good friend of ours, obviously. And Carl uh, talks to Stephanie, calls her up and she says, you know, Carl, tell me, talk me off a ledge here. What, what job should Jay take? And Carl said, well, it's a no brainer, Stephanie. Let me ask you a question. It would she goes, uh, Long Beach State is basically BYU TV. Penn State is ESPN. What do you think more people are going to know about? And obviously the answer is Penn State. And he said, look, that job for Jay's career is going to be the best one. Uh, and, you know, granted, had I stayed at Long Beach or been at Long Beach, I could have had a couple of national championships by now. But 
the experience would have been completely different. It's a much different culture than what PAV does at, uh, at Penn State. And, you know, PAV allowed me to be me. And so when I made that move, I told Stephanie, I said, this move that we make now is for me. The next move that we make from Penn State will be for you. And she was like, cool, I'm in it to win it. And she went from making, uh, let's just say well over six figures to making $30,000 a year. And she was not happy. <laughs> she loved Penn State. She loved everything going on. But she was like, geez, Louise, I'm, I'm away from all my friends and family. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know, and meanwhile, Jay's gallivanting around the countryside coaching and having fun. Uh, but, you know, it, it was an adjustment, Dan. You know, living in central Pennsylvania, as you well know, is not exactly uh you know the hustle and bustle of the city and stephanie is a person that likes a lively lifestyle and so for me it was awesome i loved it out there um for her it was a little bit of an adjustment but she she adjusted fine after a couple of years and and fell in love with the place and then obviously moving to a little bit more of a bigger city here by dc was a little bit of a, a better move for her so that's the long answer to did play. you did no, and, and that was what I was hoping for, because that's that's an awesome story. And I think a lot of people need to hear that, because at some point, there's a crossroads. And, and I I went the opposite way. I chickened out. You know, I had a few offers, especially on the beach side, that I could have taken, but I couldn't pull the trigger. I couldn't uproot my wife. I couldn't uproot my kids for the uncertainty of a coaching career. Um, and, and I think, you know everyone always says, and I think it's bullshit, to be honest with you, everyone's like, no regrets, you know, whatever. And I, I probably say that's one of my, my only or my biggest regrets is maybe I should have taken a chance. And don't get me wrong, I'm ecstatic and happy the way things have turned out. But th there are certainly those moments that I think back of what if I would have taken that job? Yeah. And it, who knows, it, it could have completely gone off the rails and been horrible, you know? Um, what was your expectation and what was Mark's expectation of your shelf life at Penn State? Like, I'm assuming that you both kind of went into it knowing that this was going to be a stepping stone, that you weren't planning on being a lifer. Um, was there that discussion? And what did you both kind of have the same time frame in mind or? Yeah, no, that, that I, re I will remember forever my flight out. Um, you know, we, we connected, I think, from Minneapolis uh to state college and on that flight was sean ganner and uh, i didn't know who he was at the time i didn't know him on the flight i didn't recognize him and say hey but i got off the plane in state college um and sure enough uh you know pav is there to pick me up and i see pav and i give him a big hug and and uh and all of a sudden he stops hugging me he looks over and he gives ganner <laughs> you know the, the bro shake so to speak and and I'm like, who's this guy? Like, they fly two people out for the interview at the same time. And, and obviously, Ganner, you know, was just going home. But um, on the drive, literally on the drive to the office, Pav looked at me and said, you know, if you think you're going to outlast me and take the job from me here, you're going to be here for quite a long time because I'm not going anywhere. Uh, and, and, it, and it set the tone comedically because he laughs you know you know pav is he's not he's not exactly a serious <laughs> guy um but it set the tone for what the expectation was for me and what i told him was pav i will if i get this job i want to see a full class through 
So I want to come in, I want to recruit a class, and I want to see that class go from beginning to end. And when I'm done with that, then I will reassess as time goes on. And he said, that's perfect. That's all I could ask for. And um, so, you know, obviously I got there, recruited a class, saw that class go through. And then Pav being who Pav is, was always uh, a massive supporter of my future. And he knew that in my last year or so there that I was looking, I was talking to other schools. I got, I got interviewed to go to Utah. I got interviewed to go to Illinois when Hambly was still there. Um, I got a call from IPFW, uh, call from USC. Like I, I got, I got some calls and have every step of the way was nothing but supportive. And the best thing that he said to me was, if you go nowhere, you still have a job here. So go ahead and interview and wait for the right job that makes the right sense. And I can't, I can't thank him enough for that because it just eliminates any stress of, my God, my, if my head coach finds out that I'm interviewing, are they going to, you know, feel that I'm, you know, pulling away from the program and, and they're going to fire me. It was nothing like that. It was the exact opposite. And that, that was such a, 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 uh, a gift. And, and I look at it as that because it just allowed me to be comfortable with that whole process. And that process sucks. You know, the, the whole, uh, you know, Stephanie and I, we played the what if game. You know, and we did it ever since we, we got together. You know, what if this school? What if that school? What if this location? What if this state? What if this? And, and we would eliminate a large portion of places just based upon geographics. Uh, and then we'd have some places like, oh, that'd be a fun place to go. Um, and that year, uh, I was, I'll be honest with you, Dan, I thought I was going to three or four places for sure. And, and for whatever reason, uh, did not get those jobs. Uh, and thankfully so, because it led to where I'm at now, but, um, it's a tough, it's a tough game to be an assistant waiting for that next bigger opportunity to come, whether it's a head coach or a bigger assistant at a bigger program for women's. Um, obviously where the resources and the money are, you know, you, you're, you get in that mode of like when you're in an apartment and you know, you're moving in that last month of living in an apartment, you kind of let things go. And that's kind of what happens when you, when you're in that position of, all right, I think I'm going here. And all of a sudden, like everything else kind of takes a back seat and you start planning ahead and planning forward and you get ahead of your skis. Cause if nothing pans out then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, shoot. And you had this letdown, this trough and it's brutal. Uh, and especially when you're bringing somebody along for the ride, you know, you mentioned the opportunities that had posed themselves to you and you always felt like, geez, what I should have taken them. Uh, you, you know, some, sometimes you, you have to have somebody with you that's mobile. Right. And, and if your wife is not mobile, then that, that's a huge limiting point. And you got to be respectful of that, I think. And I, and I know you love your wife and I know that that you want what's best for her and the kids and you're, and you're not just going to pick up and move to go be an assistant somewhere. Uh, I was in a lucky position that my wife is mobile and can go anywhere I could and can find a job or continue to work the same job and just be in a different state. So that allowed me a little bit of freedom, but she was in the trough with me because she would go through the ups and downs and she would get excited and we'd look at homes in the area and we'd kind of start to, you know, pre-plan out like, okay, here's what we got to spend and here's where we want to live. And, <laughs> you just kind of going through it all. And then, you know, when it doesn't happen, you both kind of look at each other like, oh, what a bummer. So. 
Well, I, that's like literally the perfect segue into my next question is how do you deal with the logistics? And, and the two main ones are you got to live somewhere in Happy Valley. So, so you buy a house, do you rent a house? And then in five years, you know, you're, you're now moving on to, to D, the DC metro area, you know, and, and Mason, but you don't know how that's going to turn out, right? Especially in men's volleyball. And, and I can't imagine now how scary it is with COVID and, and schools cutting programs and everything. What do you do real estate wise? Like, is there a secret network of, hey, I'm a coach, so I need a good deal and it needs to be flexible in case it doesn't work out? Or you just do it like normal and you figure it out and, and you, you just sell if you have to move on? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really great question. And I think it, I think it comes with a couple of different answers. First, first and foremost, moving to Pennsylvania, we actually, we rented a house kind of sight unseen. We, we had Colin McMillan take some pictures for us of this place that we were looking at. Uh, and we were renting this, this, this house. And it was a, a really nice place. Uh, and we were really excited about it. And literally three months into it, the owner came by one day and we were talking to him and, and we were like, hey, you know, we know that you had the house on the market for a while. Are, are you still trying to sell? Because if you are, then we're not going to unpack everything. And he said, no, 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 I'm taking it off the market. It's not selling. And, you know, it's just not right. It's not the right place for people to buy. So, you know, you can be in it for as long as you want. And so we were pretty excited about that. Um, and then literally a week later, we unpack everything. And sure enough, Murphy's Law kicks in. He calls us the following week and says, uh, <laughs> we have somebody coming to look at the house. And they bought it. And we, we were literally like, wait a minute. We just unpacked everything we have. And now you're telling us that we, we got to move. So we kind of fell into the house that we bought. Uh, it just so happened that he, the owner of the house, knew of this couple that was getting a divorce. And they were, they were going to sell the house. So we kind of got a sneak peek in it. We fell in love with it and said, we'll take it. And, uh, and just fell into that one. Um, but uh, when we came out here to, uh, to Northern Virginia, our, my thought process is always, if you're gonna be somewhere for longer than a few years, or at least you plan to, if you have the wherewithal and, and the finances to buy something, it just makes more sense, right? I mean, even if you sell it after three years, you're gonna get your money back at least. And I, I just think, you know, if it's going to be for a year long, yeah, renting's probably easier, but you probably don't have that much stuff. Uh, so it's easier to bounce around. But if you're a husband and wife, you might as well start building some equity somehow. And so uh, the house we bought out here, we, we, we moved, we were a little further away from campus. Uh, we didn't want to be in the Fairfax area. So we're just outside of it um, by about 20 miles. And uh, uh, it, I, I think it just, it makes more sense financially, especially when you're older, to, to not be burning money every month if you don't have to. Right, right. And not everybody has so that. Um, not everybody has that that opportunity. That that that's you know, we're a couple with with dual buying power. You know, if you're a single person trying to bounce around, you're probably going to have to rent. And that's where you know you talked about it briefly. That you you call up the other coaches on staff at the job you're taking and go, hey who has, you know, an assistant coach or who knows of a trainer that has a room for rent. You kind of just, you know, do what you got to do there. Um, I mean, luckily for you, Steph was easy to get 
a job, right? Same company, just moved state, right? So had that not happened, would that have been a big hitch, you think? So at the time when uh, Mason opened up their job, earlier in the summer, Grand Canyon called me up and said, hey, we want to offer you the job, the men's job here at Grand Canyon. And Stephanie's family is all in Phoenix and Flagstaff. We got married in Flagstaff. So her whole family is out there. And I, I immediately was like, uh, Phoenix? And she said, heck yeah. So we were, we were excited. I was going to fly out the following day uh, to Grand Canyon. They were going to make me an offer. And literally the next morning, they called me up and said, hey, the, the job's not going to go after all. We got some other things we got to do. It's going to be put off for a year. And so that entire summer, uh, it, it, it went by the wayside. Then Mason opened up. And then literally the week before I was getting ready to sign my contract or get, even get the job extended to me, Grand Canyon called me again and said, hey, we're, we're back to where we want to get you in here. Let's fly you in. We're going to offer you the job. Her job, uh, when she was, when we were in state college, she worked her way up from the bottom at Rico. And when they heard that she was potentially, um, you know, ready to move somewhere, she had two promotions waiting for her. One of them was in Philadelphia and one of them was in Washington, DC. And if I, if I stayed at Penn state, the Philadelphia job would have been hers. So she was fine there. If I moved to DC, uh, the promotion to go there was there and she would have been, you know, fine. And I would obviously have my job. The job at Phoenix was not the same. It was back to square one. So to answer your question, yeah, no, she was, that was a big discussion point was the job for her because remember the, the job to Penn state was for me. The next job was going to be for her. And if we would have done that, even though she would have been closer to family, she would have had to start back over at square one. And I just, you know, doing that to her twice, would have just crushed my soul. And, you know, with the, with the amount of, right. with the amount of sacrifices that she's made for me over the years and, and, and allowed me to, you know, cruise the world and, and kind of leave her behind at certain times. I, I just couldn't see that. So um, we, we, we turned that job offer down and, and went to Mason and that was the best move. So closing this chapter of what we want to talk about, what's, What's next? What is the big goal for Jay? And, and obviously, and I'm talking away from Mason. And I'm not talking about leaving Mason. I'm just saying, obviously, your goal should be to win a national championship with Mason because I think that'd be amazing and awesome and deserved some East Coast love. But but what are some of the other things on the horizon that you know kind of tickle your fancy and, and get you going and out of bed a little bit away from Mason? Yeah, it's uh, a really good question. So. There's a couple of things, um, you know, obviously I, I could retire here as long as men's volleyball is still around uh, after all this is said and done. I, I really, I really love the university I work for. Um, my, my boss, you know, you, you know, as well as anybody, you know, volleyball on its own, there's not a lot of people that kind of get it in the athletic department. They're all just kind of like, yeah, it's volleyball, whatever men's volleyball is even worse <laughs> at most places. Nobody even knows that they have a men's volleyball team. You know, my boss was a men's volleyball guy. And so to have an AD who not only understands volleyball, but also played volleyball in college to have that kind of support and that person going to bat for you every time it's, it's one of the best jobs in the country. So from that standpoint, 
I, I could be here for a very long time if I if I play my cards right and do the right things. Um, I've talked to my AD, the head AD, about maybe transitioning into an associate AD in the future. I've got my master's degree in uh, athletic administration, coaching in athletic administration, and uh, that, that's interesting to me. I, I don't necessarily know what capacity, um, but I'd like to do something with player development or uh, athletic development or maybe you know, something to do with, you know, securing donors for the program, sponsors, things like that. But that's, you know, 10, 12, 15 years down the line. Um, in the meantime, uh, I've kind of taken a page out of your book. Uh, and I'm now the master coach for uh, a new boys and girls volleyball club out of a place called the St. James here in, uh, in Springfield, just outside of Fairfax. Um, and I'm finding, <laughs> it's funny, I, 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 I told them what I wanted and I, I said to myself, if they accept it, I have to do it. Right. And cause it was just, it was a dumb request. And they looked at me and immediately said, yes. And I told them my, my restrictions. I said, I don't want to deal with administration. I don't want to deal with parents. I don't want to deal with, you know, travel. So I, don't, I just want to coach the coaches. I want to streamline how we train. I want to do some clinics. I want to do, you know, recruiting seminars. I want to do things that I feel are, are going to benefit the club as a whole rather than benefit the, myself, so to speak. Um, and I'll tell you, I, I go in once a week for four hours and every hour I, I have a setup, you know, and they, they literally coaches will sign me up for an hour to work with their team. And, you know, I'll go in on a Monday night and the first hour I'm with an 18 boys team. The second hour I'm with a, 12 year old girls team the third hour i'm with a 16 year old girls team and the fourth hour i'm with you know i'm doing a setting clinic for anybody who sticks around and i'll tell you dan i walk out of those things more refreshed and energized than i do from almost any other coaching job that i do there's something about you know the 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 uh the uniqueness of every team and you know the the, the long grind of a season albeit fun and I and I love what I do with the men's team at Mason it's a long it's a marathon right it's not a it's not a sprint it's a marathon well these little hour snippets that I get with these teams they're like 100 yard dashes and so I literally get in I I work whatever I can and I fix whatever I can and I give the coaches some insight and see things and how to look for you know this and that and then I get out and then I see these kids and the light bulb moments that happen. And I see the coaches going, I never saw that before. And I, and I walk away so energized from that. And I, I'd really like to see that become, uh, you know, a, a premier club in the area for boys volleyball and girls volleyball. There's a ton of competition for the girls. Um, but, you know, it's a beautiful facility. And so I think, I think we'll be able to compete there. But there's really nothing else for boys in the area. Uh, and so to become the team in the area that boys can go and play for um, and be able to have good coaching from the, from the, you know, 14s on up, that's huge. Uh, and it only builds my game in the college better. And it, and it just, you know, growing the game in that sense is really interesting to me. I, I enjoy doing that a ton. I could see myself doing that for, you know, a, a long time. And, and really, you know, the USA cap courses that you and I have done over the years, I really enjoyed that too. I, I walk away from those weekends and they're grueling, right? I mean, you're, you're in there doing different topics for all hours of the day. And at the end of the day, you're kind of tired and, and worn out. 
but you and I both, you know, we, we get into those discussions. We get into those classrooms and those gyms with those coaches. And sometimes, and, and I don't know how you feel about it, but I know myself, I go, God, who's going to want to listen to me talk about the basics of an arm swing, right? But how many coaches go, I never saw that before. I never thought of that before. I never understood the characteristics of this phrase or what, the, what, this, what this meant when they were talking about this. And those coaches walk away. And, and usually the, some of them walk away going, ah, this isn't really, I didn't really get much, which is okay. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe you get one new thing that you can take back home. That's fine. But some of those coaches, they walk away with so much. And I still, and I'm sure you do too. I get emails. I get, you know, text messages. I get phone calls. <laughs> from various coaches around the country. And I'm talking high level division one women's coaches all the way down to a 12 year old, you know, girls coach that's never coached before. And they always go, Oh, I remember you talking about this. Can you, can you maybe extrapolate that a little bit more? And then you get into the dialogue with them and it's really awesome. So I, I guess teachings in my heart, man. And I guess, you know, you and I both are in this profession because we love the sport, but I think we more love coach, love teaching. We love being uh, a mentor to people of various ages and various skill levels and seeing those light bulb moments. Cause we're, you know, we, we, we want people to be happy. You know, I, I want people to move on with life. I want things to be good and I want them to, to take off. So I think that, that kind of is where that's kind of where I'm at, I guess, professionally. Wow. You hit on like so many awesome nuggets there. Like first, I think, Every single club, if you are a serious youth club, and I don't care what sport, you should have a master coach. If you have more than four teams in your club and you're not just like this mom and pop, hey, I'm forming a high school club, you know, so my high school team can play together, should have a master coach. There should be someone there that's educating the coaches and the players that's not part of the political embodiment of the club. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not involved in that who made tryouts, whose mom makes the best cookies. So this coach picks the kid for the team, like someone that's isolated from all that and is just there for the sport, both for the coaches and the players. I, I think every club should have a master coach that is not a head coach of a team. Yeah, I would, I would agree um, with you. It was, it was always on my mind of, you know, it, it's really prevalent on the women's side. I'm, I'm not sure. I think, you know, if you look at the at this wide swath of coaches around the country in women's volleyball, there are a thousand ways that they coach uh, passing. Let's just throw passing out there. And literally, you could go from one coach to the next to the next, and they've all got different ways of trying to train and teach and how their kids, you know, handle that skill. On the men's side, it's really almost, we almost all train the same things. You know, in the men's college game, we probably overlap 90% of how we train things. There might be little differences and maybe their, their defensive blocking and or, or skill or, or, or schemes or things like that. But so I wanted, I wanted those kids when they came in as a 12 year old and their coach talked about a certain way to pass, a certain way to set, a certain way to run uh, an offense, this and that, and then, and the nomenclature and verbiage that gets used. I wanted them when they left that 12s year and they went to the next year, the 13s, I wanted them to walk in already running and knowing what to expect so that there was no longer this reinventing the wheel. You know, it's too many times you get this kid who learns how to pass at 12, 
one way and then they get to the 13s and then their coaches teach them a completely different way to pass and then they get to the 14s and this coach doesn't even care how they pass so they develop even worse bad habits then they get the 15s which is where the recruiting really starts to happen and they're not even doing that well but if they have the ability to hit the ground running every time then you're just you're just fine-tuning as you go on and that's where that was really my goal and, I, and i'm just super excited about it yep and and then the other half that you hit on was the whole cat thing. I mean, where was that last one that we did? The Badger Regents, where were we? Wisconsin? Yeah, where we were. <laughs> and yeah, but but everyone's all like, "Oh man, it's great! You get to travel and meet these coaches." Like, no, it is a grind yeah. because we are up early. We get there, we're standing on the court or we're in the classroom training all day long. And those few modules or moments that we have off, we're usually in the classroom watching each other because we want to we want to continue learning. And you know, like I'm sitting in on your video thing because I want to see how you're doing video breakdown. And I don't think people realize how much time is invested in courses where coaches are teaching coaches. And and yeah. it's the same way. It's you know what? There's going to be that handful that are like, hey, I'm just doing this to get certified because my co my my club requires it. But then there's that group that, I mean, my very, very first, I started CAP on the beach side um, before I started doing both of them. And my very first BCAP was in 2011. And we had 13 people in BCAP one. And to this day, I probably talked to 10 of them on a weekly basis. And that is what I love. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it starts out it goes through these phases, right? The the first year after a cap or the first couple of months, it's, Hey, I forget what you said about this or what would you suggest to that? And then it turns into, Hey man, this is what we're doing. And we won our sectional or we won this tournament. Yeah. And then it turns into, Hey, I've really had this idea about running this. Like yeah. it goes from, I don't understand what you said. To, okay. What you said is working to okay i have an idea what do you think about it and that's what i love watching the progression of a coach through that relationship over the couple of years after you train with them yeah no that's that's really a good point how many times I, I i start out every pod or every section of when i do those things with you know i i'm going to give you some information but the real nuggets are the discussions that we're going to spin off from it and how many times we've sat in the room and i've heard you know, you hear the gamut of, you know, wow, that's a great idea to why would you do that? And all of a sudden the discussion points that come out of that and the people that all of a sudden perk up because they feel like they have uh, some input to give. And it is awesome. Those, those round table moments where you're just discussing these things. And there's, there's been times where people are pretty passionate about the way that they do things, the way that they set up a defense or the way that they, they, they talk about passing, whatever the case is. And, and you kind of look at me and go, man, I'm not telling you that this is what you have to do. I'm just giving you another idea, another thought. And then once you, once you, once you eliminate the, the I am lecturing and you must learn and you have to do to the level of I'm merely going to present to you another idea that works for me and my gym. Take with it or take from it what you want and throw away what you don't. And it's okay that eliminates all the stress and that allows them now to really discuss. And I love those moments. That stuff's cool. And, and I think that was the hardest part when I started doing caps for me is why would anyone want to listen to me? Right. And, 
And once I flip that switch of you're listening to me because I'm presenting you something different and whether you take it or not is up to you. Um, and, and once I got over that whole, look, I don't want these people thinking like I'm sort of some sort of expert. I'm just here to point a different point of view on things. And, and once I got into that mode, life became much easier. Yeah, no, that's very true. And, and I think you and I probably, the, the, the first time we did those, there was the legitimacy factor that creeps into your brain, right? Are these people going to think that I'm a legitimate coach? Are they going to think that my experience is enough? Is, are they going to think that I know what I'm talking about? And once, once you get past that hump and you no longer are worried about, well, I, I should have some respect because I've done A, B, and C, and you're merely just going, hey, here's something to think about. And then you, you give some, some references to how you came to that. And all of a sudden the discussions start. And then at the end, they just kind of go, yeah, yeah, cool. I didn't think about that. And that, that, that's, that's where it all just released for me as well. Because as a young coach, right, you're, yeah. we want to be legitimate. We want to be considered one of the better coaches. We want to be considered, you know, somebody that people can look up to. As you get older, you start to realize, <laughs> who, who cares if they look up to you or not? If they're coming to your thing, they're listening to you. And so maybe then that's when you can gain some of that legitimacy. And the, the kids make fun of me because I still have this habit of when I get a really important phone call from, uh, you know, a hiring coach, um, I, I, I'm not going to name drop or anything like that, but, you know, a, a, an Olympic coach or someone like that calls and, and asks me something, I stand up. <laughs> like it's some weird respect thing. Like I'm sitting lounging on my couch and the phone rings and I talk and I'm like, uh Oh, so I stand up. So the kids are like, Oh, it must be an important coach. Cause dad's standing up for this phone call. And it's just, it's just crazy, but I don't know that that'll ever change. And I, and I, and I think that's what I love about, about teaching and, and passing that knowledge on. And I just hope that, that people recognize how hard it is to actually do those courses. Yeah. yeah um, no, regardless of how long we've been coaching. Yeah. There's a lot of preparation to go into those things. And I think you're right. Everybody goes, Oh, they get to travel around the country and they get to do all these things and all these coaches and you're in the gym. Yeah. You're in the gym all day or you're a classroom. And you know, it's, it's not like, you know, Stephanie makes fun of me all the time. She goes, Oh, you're going around the world and you're traveling and doing that. I go, honey, I'm in a gym all day. I'm not, I'm not tour, you know, sightseeing across the countryside and sipping wine on the, you know, in Tuscany all day long. It's not like that. Yeah. Thankfully when we were in, in Germany and we did that camp with, with Brian over in Vilsack, he at least built in some moments where we got to go around and see Munich and, and Bavaria, but I spent most of my time in the same gym. So it didn't make a difference that I was literally in the middle of Germany versus being home. It was the exact same scenery almost. Yeah. I've been, I've been meaning to go on that and do that with Brian and just the timing has never worked out over the years, but I've heard nothing but good things about those trips. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. So hopefully they'll get back on track here with, you know, COVID and the budget cuts and everything, you know, kind of killed this year and last year, but hopefully we'll, we'll see something good happen. Well, and, here, and here's a question so, before you, I know you got, you know, you got a timeline here, but I don't want to, I don't want to hijack it, but I wonder if, you know, we're talking about all these coaching opportunities and, and, and how do you move up and this and that. I wonder if, you know, a lot of these people are that are young coaches that are maybe volunteers or maybe second assistants and not making a lot of money and they're seeing the COVID stuff going on and teams are either not playing or they're cutting their program. 
I wonder how much turnover and transition is going to come because of that and how many new uh, unexpected opportunities are going to come out of that. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be a big one. Um, you, you know, one of the things in the coaching world, especially when you're starting out is a lot of time it's the spouse that's the breadwinner to support the coach that's just starting out. And I think if, if the breadwinner is kind of down and out because of COVID, that means the coach is down and out and kind of has to do something else. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what might open up and, and, you know, who can do things, who can travel. And, you know, there might be an issue with coaches getting time off or being able to come out and do some of the national team or the pipeline stuff. So we may be hurting for high performance coaches. I mean, who knows how the fallout of this is going to be. Yeah. 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 Strange. So, so my last question, what I kind of want to end with, and we, we kind of hit on it, but I've had this lingering thought and I thought it fit in well with our whole topic today is, do we need to move up? And, and what I mean by that is sometimes I feel like there's a lot of really, really good high school coaches or really, really good club coaches that coach for a long time and end up moving up you know, the high school coach becomes a junior college coach or the junior college coach becomes a D3 coach. Do you think there's any value or what the thought process of just staying where you're at? If you're a really good high school coach and you enjoy it, you don't need to move up. Like, do you feel like there's that kind of that pressure? Like, you, oh, you've been the assistant at Penn State for so long, it's time for you to move on. But what if you're happy there? Yeah, no, that's... Do you, do you feel like we pressure... There's too much pressure for for that to happen? So, it, it's funny you ask that. Um, when I was at Irvine Valley, uh, Pesto was the head coach for the men's and the women's teams. And, and I'm not going to lie to you, Pesto made amazing money. And, and I'll just say above six figures. In junior college, you know, master's degree, coached both teams... Uh, I think he taught a golf class and I think he taught surfing for a little bit, like literally, you know, just fun stuff. And I don't know if that job is still available uh, in terms of the money nowadays. It doesn't matter. Right? That's besides the point. So at some point, Pesta was telling me, Hey, I'm going to retire some year in the near future here. Would you be interested in the job? And at the time, I, I, I was the assistant with him and I said, oh my God, I would love this job. I, you know, I'm not thinking how long down the line is it going to happen. Uh, and then I got the job at Penn State and every year he would call me up and say, hey, you know, I'm getting closer. Are you still interested? And I, I'll be honest with you. I felt like I had moved past that level. And now that I was at the D1 level and at a, at a high level D1, I felt uh, a pull not to coach at the highest level, but to bring, to be at a level where I, I felt that I was uh, making the most impact and could do the things that I wanted to do, but bring the level of fun aspect from that junior college level into that D1. Uh, I know that's kind of a, a convoluted statement, but basically what I wanted to do is how we worked at Irvine Valley, I wanted to bring into D1. And, and it worked to some degree here at Mason. And, and I got to do a little bit of a Penn State, but obviously it wasn't my program. Um, but somebody asked me, 
well, would you ever be interested in the head coach for the national team job? And, and immediately your thought is, oh, wow, that what an honor, right? I mean, I, I, I coached the junior national team and I've been with the senior national team for a little while. And, and you know, obviously the level is fun, um, but it's a whole new level of, of stress and dedication. And, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure that that's something I would be, I would jump on board with immediately. I think it would have to be a, a long conversation. But the answer, I think, to your question is, Pesto could have easily moved on. He was one of the most successful coaches at the junior college level um, and could have easily gone D1 and had a couple opportunities at times and turned it down. And his response was always, it's the quality of life that I have. The quality of life that I have at Irvine Valley, I get to do what I want to do. And I get to have a lifestyle that lets me be me and enjoy life at the same time. The, the lifestyle of a D1 head coach on the women's side, I mean, it, it, you know you know what Russ Rose as well as I do. That guy never sleeps. You know, he's not not coaching and not not recruiting and not not thinking about the next practice. And I know he, I know he takes a little vacations here and there, but man, oh man, you want to talk about a grind. I mean, that guy, it seems like 45 weeks out of the year, He's off on the countryside somewhere looking at a kid and, and going recruiting and, you know, talking to the coaches and, and, you know, it's just, it's an, an endless cycle of work. Do I want that? Man, the money's nice, but I don't necessarily know if that's my lifestyle, if that's what I want, you know, here at Mason, you know, I, I work real hard and, and I put in the hours and I, and I do what I can to make my program the absolute best that it can be. And I also get to play a lot of golf and I get to spend a lot of time with my wife and I get to travel <laughs> around the country. And I, and I, you know, I, I really love, you know, my life. And so do I want to change that to jump up? I'm not so sure, Dan, that I do, but that's where you and I, I think have, have, have gotten to an age in our life where we're able to comfortably have that conversation, even though it's uncomfortable at first, but the comfortable end of it all is always what's true to me, what, what makes me happy, what drives me, and am I getting those things now at my current location? And if the answer is yes, then what's, what's, what's the draw for the next level? I mean, you and I both know Brad Keller. He was at, he was at UCLA, you know, basically running the program because Spraw's with the national team for eight months out of the year. And he got a taste of maybe getting a head coaching job at a big time program. And he immediately went, Nope, I, I have to do it. I have to make the jump. And that's when he got the job at USC. And that's, that was his drive, but that's Brad. You know, I'm not sure that that's a job that I would want. I'm not sure that being a head coach of a division one major women's program is my logistical or logical next step. And I love where I'm at now. Awesome. And, and, and that's really just sums up. I don't have much to add to that. I mean, that's, that's exactly where I'm at. I'm at the point now what my next steps, I want it to be about comfort and enjoyment. And maybe that isn't moving up the ladder and maybe moving to a different ladder or whatever, but I no longer want to do what's expected. I want to do what's going to make me happy and what I feel is the best move. Well, the kids and the kids, well, they, my friend, uh, they'll listen, they'll listen they'll listen a lot more when they know that you're passionate about what you do. And when you're happy, your passion comes through a lot more. Right. So. Yep. Absolutely. Well, my friend, that, that hour and plus blew by. Um, 
I'm sure uh, next season I'll have you back on and, and we'll chat some more about it. But thank you again for this conversation because I, I I tried to veer away from volleyball because it was an easy, low-hanging fruit for me. But I knew that um, your coaching pedigree and, and what you've gone through to get where you're at, I think, is cross sport. I, th I think there's a lot of other sports and a lot of other coaches out there that could appreciate you know, what we discussed on this and, and thank you for taking the time and hopefully I'll get a chance to come down and watch you guys play this year. I, I appreciate the, uh, the honor greatly to be on your show and I could have talked for four more hours. I love that kind of stuff. So I appreciate right. it. Right. All right, my man. Well, thank you. And thanks everyone tuning into the mental cast. This was a awesome chat with friend mentor all around. Awesome guy. Uh, Jay Hasek, head coach of George Mason men's volleyball. Again, thanks, Jay. And I look forward to our next chat. Thanks. Tell me where to send the check to for that nice uh, little last statement. You made about <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Thank you for listening to The Mental Cast, powered by Soul Performance Academy and hosted by Dan Mickle. You can always reach the show on all social media platforms at the username at RealDanMickle or via the show's website at danmickle.com. Don't forget to check out our title sponsor, Soul Performance Academy, at the username at 717soul and on their website, 717soul.com. We hope you can join us for our next episode. Thank mm -hmm. you.